I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. 2 Peter, chapter 3. We live in a day of unprecedented mocking, mocking of Christians, the Word of God, and the living God himself. And though, sad to say, some Christians earn the mocking that they get because of their behavior, because of their errant theology, the perfect God, the God of all glory, and his infallible and pure and precious word are not deserving. They're beyond error. And one day, God says that he will call those people who mock him into question upon his return. So Peter is dealing with mockers, and his whole object is to encourage these first-century Christians in the process of the mocking that's going on round about him. Now, we live 2,000 years later, and of course, men have progressed worse and worse, the scriptures told us it would happen, so that in 40 years of ministry, I have never seen anything that even comes close to what we're uh, looking at today as far as the markers are concerned. Peter wants to encourage the saints about their present condition and God's future restoration of his people, Israel, and his church. Now, Peter wants to strengthen them, and that's what we're looking at in 2 Peter chapter 3. I will be focused on in this section, and we'll read to you several other scripture passages from other areas, but uh, we'll be going to Genesis chapter 1 in just a few moments. So let's look at what Peter speaks about concerning these markers. He says in verse 1, this second epistle, beloved, I write unto you, both which I stir up your pure mind by way of remembrance. Think back, Peter says, think back to what God's word has said, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Old Testament prophets, the writers of the Old Testament scriptures, and the New Testament apostles, the writers and foundation of the New Testament epistles. Remember those words, he's saying, grab onto those, hold on to those. Why? Because, verse 3, knowing this first, that there shall come scoffers in the last days, scoffing and walking after their own lusts. The last days began with the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension into glory. Once he ascended into glory, it became the, the last days. God has a program and a process in, in, in part. We are in two, into this 2,000 years into what we know to be New Testament Christianity but there's a time when the Lord Jesus Christ will return to earth as the judge, the king of kings, and lord of lords. But those scoffers are here. Now, they're more than false teachers. And God's word is very poignant in this. They're more than false teachers. The definition of a scoffer is to hold up the nose. We would say looking down their nose. That's what our term would be. It means that they deride, they make fun of, they laugh at, not just laugh at, but laugh at with contempt. They laugh at with contempt. They're called mockers. They usually spew their venom, and the reason they do is because they have a self-proclaimed superiority. You poor Christian. You poor miserable slob. Well, they won't say that, of course, but that is what the mocking comes from. They deride Christianity. They mock. Why? Because they're challenged. They're challenged with their thinking. They're challenged with their morality. They're challenged in every part of life with God's word. Not necessarily with us, but with God's word has to say. 
It's because they're really, honestly and truly, they're really afraid. And why are they afraid? Because if we're right, they're in huge trouble. And we are right, and we'll see that in just a moment. But they're mocking and they're laughing at us. Why? There's a fear inside of them. And because they are haters of God. Say, oh, Pastor Bill, that's pretty strong. It's not strong enough. God says it. Of this, they are willingly ignorant. See, they know. They know God, yet they glorify him not as God. Neither are they thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart is darkened. So when we're talking about scoffers here, we're not just talking about someone, well, they don't know what they're talking about, the poor souls. We're talking about people, and in reality, these scoffers knowingly or unknowingly are demonically oppressed. That is, they're spewing out the doctrine of demons, knowingly or unknowingly. So we're not talking about just a little problem here. We're talking about a worldwide problem. But you know what, folks? It's not our problem. It's not ours. Why? Because we know the truth. And Paul is backing us up by way of remembrance. Now, this is so interesting because Peter, in 2 Peter, says they're coming. Mockers shall come. In Jude, Jude and 2 Peter are parallel books. Two years later, Jude writes they're here. And if you think my words are bad, read what Jude has to say about them. You will be shocked at what Jude has to say. But they're all around, and they were in, in the first century Christians, and they're here today, only they're ramped up tenfold. And so as we're looking at this, let's recognize that the attack is on. The attack is on. It was my privilege to teach at the Church of the Open Bible in Burlington, Massachusetts, as their pastor, and then to teach at the Open Bible Academy. And we had some very brilliant students there, high school students, and they all went on to, it used to be University of Lowell, it's now University of, of Massachusetts. Anyway, they went there, and when they came back, these were, these were the top-notch kids. These were first-class individuals. When they came back, two of them sat down with me and say, they said, Pastor Bill, you won't believe what's going on. Not only do they mock Christianity, they attack Christianity openly, publicly from their platforms. These are secular schools, universities. They attack Christianity publicly from their platforms. So what's going out into the world of our young people? What, what are they filling up the minds of our young people? Scoffers and mockers. That's all there is to it. And so as we look at this, we want to see Peter's concern is for these people. He loves these people. Notice in uh, verse 3 and verse 1, this second epistle I write unto you, both of which to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. He calls them beloved. You see the same thing in verse 8, beloved. Verse 17, beloved. He is concerned about these people, and he wants to prepare them for the onslaught of what's going on. Now, how can they be prepared? How can they be prepared? Well, look, if you would please, at verse 2. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken, the word of God. He wants them to be prepared with the word of God. Not necessarily his words, although these are the words of God that God gave Peter, but the rest of the combined scriptures. Beware of that. You know, the, the Bible tells us that these satanic messengers, human messengers, they represent demonic dominion, demonic theology, if you would, satanic theology. How do we resist them? We resist them with the word of God. 
We read that in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do you do that? Resist steadfast in the faith. It's only the word of God that will protect you. You can't sing enough songs. You can't hum enough hymns. You can't light enough candles. You can't do anything except resist the devil by the word of God. And if you're not stored up with the word of God, your resistance is way, way down. The flu, satanic flu, waiteth at the door. You need just as much spiritual resistance as you do physical resistance to resist the germs of our day. And so that spiritual resistance is how? It's by the word of God, rooted, the scriptures tell us, and grounded in him in the book of Colossians chapter 2 and in verse 7. These men, notice in 1 Peter 3, 3, knowing this first, there shall come scoffers in the last days, scoffing or walking after their own lusts. It's interesting, Peter calls them scoffers that walk after their own lusts. Now, we won't get into this too deep, but just recognize that the sensuality and fleshly desires are their life. They work in the passions of life. And they're passions that are run amok. Just as a beautiful river can run down through a valley and be perfect, when the flood tides come and overflow the valley, it's utter devastation. And that's what Peter is talking about. These people have run amok with their fleshly desires. Look at chapter 2 and verse 10 for a moment, please. Chapter 2.10, talking about these false teachers, these scoffers, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. So that they're working in their own passions. They have nothing to do with what God wants. They just want to fill their fleshly desires. Look at verses 13 and 14, same chapter. And they shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they counted pleasure to revel in the daytime. Spots they are, the blemishes, reveling in their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and heart that has exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. Peter is not fooling around. You say, that seems kind of harsh. This is what God said. God said this. This isn't me all upset about something because I didn't get enough breakfast. This is God speaking. God is letting us know what he sees in these people. And he warns us what these people are like. Look at verse 18, same please. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, those through much wantonness who are escaping from them who live in error. They pollute the world. They contaminate the world with their fleshly desires that are demonic in the balance. So when we're talking about scoffers here, someone who makes little of the word of God, God's people, God's word, or God himself, we're talking about people that are infecting Christianity with their virus. And we need to recognize that. And that's why Peter writes this epistle, warning his beloved brethren. So we want to see what they say. Now, this is so interesting because... What has happened now, it's been 35 years in our text, 35 years, and the Lord hasn't returned yet. 35 years. And and so what these people are saying, these scoffers are saying, since it hasn't happened, it won't happen. There will be no judgment to come. Notice in verse 4, he says, 
And this is what the scoffers are saying. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. So what they're saying is, just as he hasn't come, he promised to come, he hasn't come, there will be no judgment. It's been 35 years, just wake up, grow up, there will not be a judgment. And then he says this, just as nothing has happened since the beginning of creation, they're mocking creation. Just as nothing has happened since the beginning of creation, what they're saying is it didn't, creation didn't happen and nothing will happen. Why? Mocking creation, life continues on as usual, nothing has changed and nothing will change. So they're spewing again out their venom and this is, this is the basis of their theology. And their theology is say, is, has said that God did not create everything and there is no God, there is no Jesus Christ that will return in judgment. Is that not what we hear today? Go to any public school. Are our children taught creation? Their answer is no. And if they're taught creation, that teacher is soon to get a pink slip. Are they taught about a God, one God, the living God, the God of the word of God? You know what the answer to that is? No. No. And if any teacher taught any of that, he would soon find his pink slip. Why? Because the world and all that in it, the scriptures tell us, is ruled by the person of the devil. This is the world we live in. You say, oh, this is terrible. No, it isn't. It's great. Why? We have an opportunity to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. More than ever, we have opportunity to share the word of God with people so they can hear the word of God. So here they come. They're mocking. They're making fun of. And Peter says, it's so interesting, again, back in verse 5, he says, for this they are willing. For this they willingly are ignorant. They want to be deceived. They like to be deceived. Why? Because God cramps their style. God cramps their style. God cramps their lusts. God gets in the way of their evil thinking. God gets in the way of their actions because the word of God is what holds them accountable. And they hate it. They hate God and they hate his word. He says, for this they are willingly ignorant. How are they ignorant? He says, for by... The word of God, the heavens of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. The first thing they deny. They deny a God, they support the evolution, and they deny creationism. They hate it. Why? Because if there's a creator, they know they're accountable to that person. If there's a divine creator, they are under subject to that divine creator. And they hate that. They don't want that. They're not willing to accept that at all. So we want to look at this, if we could, because God says, by the word of God. Remember who the creator was? The second person, triune Godhood, the Lord Jesus Christ. By him, Colossians, by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and is invisible. All things were created by him and for him, and by him all things are held together. That's God's word, and they're not going to like that. They definitely don't like that. Remember Acts 17 and verse 25, the Apostle Paul said, he gives life and breath to all things, even the mockers, even the mockers. And so as we're reading down through this, we see they're denying the God of all glory, they're denying creationism, and they're denying the Lord Jesus Christ will return to earth. They have to deny that. Why? Because their actions will be judged if the word of God is correct. Now, remember we read, and I won't have you turn there just for the sake of time because we have to continue moving along. 
by the word of the Lord. I'm reading from the 33rd Psalm. For by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the seas together as a heap. He lays up the depth in storehouse. All the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And listen to this, please. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood still. The creator called everything into existence by his spoken word, by the word of his mouth. We read in Isaiah 45, Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, I have made the earth and created man upon it. Even my hands have stretched out the heavens and all the host have I given command. God created everything. So Peter gives us a cliff note version of creation. Remember he said the holy apostles and prophets wrote and he gives us just a, an analogy of that. Look, if you would, again, at 2 Peter 3, verses 5 and 6. He says, For this they are willingly ignorant, that by the word of God the heavens of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world then, being overflowed with water, perished. Now, we want to look at that for a moment, if we can. We're going to quickly run through creation. You say, well, I know this stuff. Okay, but just, just hang on for a minute, if we could, please. We just want to run through this in a very fast formula, just so we'll have solidified in our, in our knowledge that it was not theistic evolution. God started everything, and it sort of ended up the way it is. No, no. God created everything individual just the way it is today as we stand before him. God created the whole business right from the start. But remember, the earth standing in the water and out of the water, we come from a, a planet that God called together that was saturated with water. Head with me to Genesis chapter 1 for a moment, please. Genesis chapter 1. Do not be afraid of creation, brothers and sisters in Christ. I know there are people that mock it, but do not be afraid of it. God says something specific about creation. And if God said it, it's true. It's true. And you know, I've run into people, I've run into people, I don't hear them much anymore, uh, but I've run into people who say they're Christians and don't believe in creation. Could they really be Christians? I don't know that. It's possible, I guess. God knows. I don't know. But how can you call the Lord Jesus Christ a liar and say he's your savior? People do that. Okay, we're in Genesis chapter 1. God, God is the sovereign over all the earth. He created it all in time. Notice what he says in verse 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So we have God bringing this mass of liquid together. And he begins the process of, if you would, building or, or creating the planet by his spoken word. The Spirit of God is in on it. The God the Father is in on it, and the Lord Jesus Christ is in on it. The triune God creating. And notice what God says in day one, if you would, of creation. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. So God begins the process. Now, it's interesting. If you compare the scriptures, you're going to find out that the light doesn't come till later on, sun, moon, and stars, till later on. So there was a divine light, the light, if you would, of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who began the process with God. 
This was not the planetary lights of the sun, moon, and stars. This was the person of God giving light upon the face of the earth. He called the light out of darkness. God said that. You say, can you explain it all? Of course not. Can they? Oh, yes. There was a big bang and everything. Who, what, how that thing that banged got there, they can't explain that. But there it was, and it banged. And all these particles, countless trillions of planets and it all flung out to, into existence, and just so happens that we, we lucked out. And there was a primordial type of slime that covered our planet after it cooled down. And here you are sitting here, slimy. That's what it comes down to. And they say that our theology is ridiculous. Where did they drum up their stuff? It took the great minds of the world to think that stuff up. I was taught that as a young person, weren't you? I was. I, I can remember to this day, I was in grade school, and I remember a map on the wall, and there, there it was, some kind of bug, and then it kept going and going, a monkey, and then there's, there's people. And it all came out of that. What? That. That's their theology. God spoke it all into existence right from the beginning of time. Now, what happened? Well, let's continue on in verse the second day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. So we have this division of waters, a vapor canopy that covered the earth. And then we still have a ball that's saturated with water. But we now have a vapor canopy around it. And this was just a unique vapor canopy, as we'll see later on. Countless trillions of gallons of water warmed by the, the uh, next created sun to warm that vapor canopy. So the entire earth was a tropical uh, forest, if you would, as God continues his creation. The whole earth. And we still don't have dry land yet. We still don't have dry land yet. Continue on, please, in uh, verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land, land, earth, and they gathered together the waters. Uh, he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth abundantly vegetation, the herb yielding its seed and the fruit tree yielding its fruit after its kind, whose seed is within itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, the herb yielding seed after its kind, and the tree yielding fruit after its kind, so that seed was in itself after its kind. And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. So God creates these, the vegetation upon the earth, Moves the seas, they, they're together where they should be. And now what happens? God, and we don't know exactly how the seas are together. We won't see that till later on. But we recognize God has the water in one place and dry land. And now upon that dry land, up comes vegetation. And what's interesting is there's trees there already bearing fruit. Now, I'm not the brightest bulb, but I recognize it takes a long time for a fruit tree to bear fruit, does it not? Sure it does. Try it. Plant a little stick in your yard. I bought some little sticks at the end of the year from what used to be Kmart down here. No leaves on them, nothing. And I have to admit, Nancy laughed at me. She said, look at those things. And I planted them in the yard. And four years later, we had peaches and apples and cherries. It was an incredible thing. But God created trees bearing fruit with the appearance of age. Why? There's a couple that are going to come in just a few days called Adam and Eve. And that will be their meal. That will be their sustenance. So God created everything full-grown with an appearance of age. 
miraculous. Continue on, if you could, please, in verse 14. And now we come to the fourth day. Now God creates the sun, moon, and stars. Why did God do it that way? You say, well, he did it that way just to confuse people. No, he did it that way to show you he didn't need the sun. The sun is not the source of life. It's the S-O-N that's the source of life, not the S-U-N. So God creates the planets. Notice in verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the firmaments of heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. So God begins the whole process of what we know to be time, what we know to be time. And this is so interesting uh, that we know it to be the second heaven, the, the second heaven, the atmosphere around our planet, the third heaven, now with the sun, moon, and stars. And um, I mean, the first, let me get that. The first heaven atmosphere, second heaven, what we know to be the canopy, and then the third heaven, the abode of God, the sun, moon, and stars. Before that, God created the whole planetary system with all the stars. For Why did he do that? Why did he want that? He just simply says the heavens declare the glory of God. And the further men look into heaven, the more heavens they see. And beyond those heavens is the abode of the living God. He created for signs. What kind of signs? Well, navigational signs, of course, uh, for, for days and months and years. God put the whole thing together. And notice he says in verse 15, let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give off light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also, and God set them in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw it was good, and the evening and morning were the fourth day. So God puts our planetary system in place. And now we have a a 24-hour period of time uh, with the sun and the moon and their rotations. God gives us a, a perfect, a perfect atmosphere and a perfect creation round about us. Our moon is a fascinating thing. You say, well, what's it up there for? Well, for us to land on and brag about. No, no. It, it, it rules our tides. Without the moon, the entire seas would die. They would be stagnant. But the moon controls the tidal pools and controls the tides. The sun, of course, giving warmth to our plant life today. God doing all of that, giving, giving us all his creation. Why? Because he's God. But the scoffers say, oh, no, 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 no. You poor thing, you don't understand. Countless billions of years ago and eternity passed, there was a big ball that exploded. Now, God said, I called it into existence by my spoken word. But some Christians yield to that. You know, they believe in theistic evolution, as I mentioned. You know what that means? They're compromising with a dead world. That's all that means. They say, well, God began the thing, yes, yet then he let it alone, and then the amoebas came, and the apes came, and the monkeys came, and the people came. They're trying to compromise with the world. You know, folks, don't compromise. God said, let there be light. Well, they laugh at me. Let them laugh. There'll come a day when there'll be no more laughing. There'll come a day. Why? Because the judge of all glory will return. Okay, let's continue on if we could, please. Day five, day five, in verse 20 of chapter one, and God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving uh, and the fowl that flyeth above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. 
And God created great sea creatures and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl of its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters of the sea, and let the fowls multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And incredible. Aquatic creatures. Think about it. From a guppy to a blue whale, 210 feet long. From a, a minnow after its kind to blue whales after their kind. I'm sorry, 90 feet long is the biggest one. Recorded 210 tons. God created them. Now he allows species to fly in the air from a hummingbird. Did you ever see a hummingbird really work? Incredible, incredible thing. It looks a little bigger than a bee to what, what we call a condor with a nine-foot wingspan. God created every one of them after their kind, after their kind. And there they were buzzing the earth, swimming in the great oceans of the world today. Now, continue on, if you would, please, in day six. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after its kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after its kind. And God made the beast of the earth after its kind, the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps upon the earth after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Living creatures upon the earth, each after its kind. I looked this up, because I would never come up with this on my own, but there's supposedly 1,374,526 kinds today of creatures on earth. 1,000,000. 374,526 kinds of things that, uh, that uh, creep upon the earth or walk upon the earth today. That's an amazing figure. But that does not include the extinct animals, does it? It does not include the great reptiles that were known as dinosaurs that have, are now extinct. How did they become extinct? Well, we're going to see during the great noetic flood, the flood that God brought upon the earth. But what does the world say? Well, no, they all kind of evolved. They, they hate some creatures. Did you know that? They, they, they hate some creatures. They don't like whales very much. Why? Because a whale was supposed to get out of the water on the earth, and his nose somehow moved down to the front of him for a while. And then he didn't like walking on the earth any longer, so somehow he got back in the water and moved his nose back on the top of his head. That's a good explanation, isn't it? How about this explanation? God made whales just exactly the way they are. They hate the duck-billed platypus. I love duck-billed platypuses. <laughs> they can't explain it. It's not a duck. It lays eggs, it suckles its young, and it laughs in the face of those who scorn creationism. They can't explain it. There's no way to do it. But God created them individually after their kind. And you know what duck-billed platypuses produce? Not ducks. They produce little baby duck-billed platypuses. Why? God said they would only ever create after their kind. They will always multiply after their kind. So God creates these great creatures. Now, one of the creatures God created is, is so amazing, and I won't have you turn there, but in Job chapter 40, called the Brontosaurus, the largest creature that ever walked the earth. There was a skeleton found in South America 100 feet long, estimating weighing 200,000 pounds. So large was this animal, it lived in the rivers 
It did not, it, it, it was air breathing, but it lived in the rivers to keep his body somewhat buoyant because its legs would have been crushed from his very own weight. Incredible, incredible animal. God created a great flying creatures, dinosaurs. Some of them recorded with a 45-foot wingspan from tip to tip. As long as this building no longer walking the earth, no longer flying the earth. God created now man in verses 26 and following. God created man, the, crying, the crowning achievement of God's entire, entire planet. Why? Because God said, I shall create man in our likeness, in our image. God's word says something very interesting about that. He says through the writings of the scriptures, and I, I quote this from a man. I wish I could give him credit. I can't, but you may know him. God made a man and a woman in his image that they should display his glory, reflect his character, and rule his world. God created man with intellect, emotion, and will. And what did God say about that? God said, go out, fill the earth, till my garden and live for me. What happened? Well, because God gave man a will, they rejected God's word, and that's all rejection of God's word is. They, they rejected his will. They chose self-will, and that's all sin is. Self-will is ignoring or opposing the will of God. When you do something outside of God's will, that's self-will, and that's what man did, sin against God. And the world being overflowed with water, Peter said, perished. How did that happen? Well, as the world became corrupted in Adam, an entire planet became corrupted with the sinful deeds of man, wickedness. And you can see that in Genesis chapter 6. And God had man build a ship. 120 to 150 years, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He preached the word of God, and people still rejected it as he made a giant, giant barge in the middle of a desert scape. And what was the purpose of that? So that he could open the door, and God would bring two of every kind of animal, except for the sacrificial animals. He brought two of every kind of animal upon the, uh, Noah's ark, and then it says God shut the door. And then you'll read from the scriptures how God, God, God himself closed the door of the ark and sealed in Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. God closed the door of that ark, and then the great deluges of the ground erupted. You can read that in the, again in the book of Genesis, uh, chapters 6 and 7. The water from the great deep sprang up. All the aquifer of the entire earth sprang up. And the vapor canopy with the trillions of tons of water began to erode and fall to planet earth. And so God created a flood upon the earth that drowned every living creature, the scriptures tell us. Everything that breathed upon the earth died except for Noah and his family and those animals God brought into the ark. And then there was a giant global flood. Well, you say that's kind of silly, global flood. Listen to what God said. 22 and a half feet, the water prevailed above the highest mountain of the earth. It's pretty hard to have a global flood, uh, not have a global flood if the highest mountain on earth was 22 feet underwater. You know what you'd have to have? A cone-shaped flood, wouldn't you? No, God drowned the entire earth. Well, men scoff at that. No, what a flood. That's silly. That's foolish. How can that be? How could this ever happen? Well, God said, after this deluge upon the earth, God said that he then remembered Noah. Noah's barge floated continuously upon the earth until it came to rest in the mountains of Ararat. 
Uh, and to this day, that's where that ark is. If frozen, we do not know. Some people claim they have found it. I, deny, I doubt it, but I do not know that. We do not need Noah's ark to believe God's word, do we? God said it. It was done. Then what happened? Head with me to the 104th Psalm, if you would, please. The 104th Psalm. What happened? What's going on? What, you know, God created the whole thing, and then he destroyed the whole thing? The answer to that is yes. Yes, but God has a plan, and we're in the 104th Psalm. Look with me, please, in the 104th Psalm, and we'll look at verse 6. This apparently is Moses wrote this song. I'm not sure about that, but it's in the Word of God, so we do not need to know the exact person because we know it was God behind the writing of the Word. But at any rate, God lets us know that verse 5, it was God who laid the foundations of the earth and that it should not be removed forever. You covered the deep with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke, at thy voice and thunder, they hastened away. God lets us know how he brought the earth back. Remember, it's a deluge. The entire uh, earth is covered with water. What did God do? He said he pulled up the mountains and he pressed down the valley floors. Notice they go up by the mountains, they go down by the valleys into the place which you have founded for them. Thou hast set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. God promised that he would set things in order, and he promised to, to making a rainbow. And that's the promise of God that he would never again, never again destroy the earth with water. Every time we see a rainbow, it represents a deviant organization, I know that. But every time we see a rainbow today, we know it's God's promise that he will not flood the earth again. And what happened? Well, what happened in all this? Well, the Lord reconfigured the earth. The mountains go up. I guess they go up. Mount Everest, 29,035 feet above sea level. Nancy and I were in South America, in Ecuador, and we went to a, a mountain called Chimborazo. Chimborazo is 17,000-plus feet in the air. And we drove up there with a, a whole group of people. We drove up in a van, and oh, I was afraid all the way up. I said, if there's not enough air, this thing's going to conk out, and down the mountain we go, you know. Well, we got up to the top, uh, near the top of Mount Chimborazo. There was very little air, very difficult to breathe. If you walked, you begin to pass out. It, it's very difficult. And on the top of that mountain was this stuff. It's all from volcanoes. Beautiful, beautiful uh, black and red volcanoes. And you know, when, uh, when you chipped inside of these things, guess what they found? Sea fossils. 17,000 feet in the air. Guess how they get up there? Well, the, you know what the evolutionists would have to say? Well, they climbed up and dug in. <laughs> no, no, my friend. They came from the great sea beds of the earth where God raised them up. You know, my car runs on dinosaur and aquatic vegetation. We call it oil. Thank God for oil. I'm so happy. Those are the fossil remains of vegetation and animals that once roamed the earth. God created them. Then it says he pushed down the deep, the Mariana Trench, 35,037 feet deep. And as God did this, all the tectonic plates now began bouncing and rubbing together as they pulled up the mountains. And so today, ladies and gentlemen, we sit on a crust 22 miles thick. In the middle of that crust is molten lava. And why is it there? God said, one day, I'm going to destroy the earth with fire. Head back with me, please, to 2 Peter. 
God will never destroy the earth again with floods. Are there floods? Yes, but they're only local. They are not global floods. God said one day he's going to return, and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and what we know to be the great day of the Lord. He's going to come and judge this planet, the scriptures tell us. And in the meantime, he has a process where he's going to take those of us who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ with him. And then we'll begin what we know to be the great time of tribulation. We're in Second Peter now. Peter warning his constituents, warning these believers that God has a plan. God has a purpose. God is going to do something spectacular and miraculous, no matter what the scoffers say. Let them say what they're going to say. Let them make fun of who they're going to make fun of. God is not moved with that. We read in the Proverbs, to the scoffers he scoffs. God knows his end. God knows his ways from the beginning. Well, it's never happened. No. I heard a story one time where a man jumped off a very large building. He went by the 40th floor on his way down. He says, I'm okay so far. That's what the scoffers are saying. They're okay so far. We're back in 2 Peter now, chapter 3. What does God say? In verse 7, 2 Peter 3, 7. But the heavens and the earth which now are, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved for fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. God has reserved the whole business for judgment, the whole thing. The scoffers, where is the promise of his coming? He's coming. It's still a promise. It's still there. He's coming. But what is our great God doing? He's giving them time to believe. He's giving them time to repent. He's giving them time to see that the Lord Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father by him, but by him. He's giving them time to believe, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He's giving them time, just as he gave them time in the days of Noah, just as he gave the, the enemies of Israel time to repent, he's giving this country in this world, time to believe. Look at verse 9. God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but his long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come. It's going to come. Well, the most brilliant minds in this earth say no. Can I give you this Bible verse? The world by wisdom knew not. They make fun of God's word. We believe by faith that the word of God is true and that one day the king of kings and lord of lords will return in what we know to be his judgment. Verse 10 again, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and all the elements shall melt with fervent heat and the earth also and its work shall be burned up. You say, the planet is a molten ball just covered with a thin crust? yes. Yes, it is. Head to Yellowstone Park, and you'll see that. My family and I walked around Yellowstone Park and observed beautiful, pristine rivers running by geysers and, and, and incredible, and if you stuck your hand in it, you'd burn your fingers. Why? Because just below the Earth's crust, there's molten lava that burns this, this, these waters that fall into it. They burst up in geysers unimaginable. We saw a whole buffalo carcass just the bones laying inside a pool while it had fallen into to, um, boiling water, and there it perished. What does God say? 
for you and I now, for you and I, and we'll close with this. What does God say? Seeing then, talking to you, talking to me, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy living and godliness? If this is true, if you believe this, that God's coming back, why do you act the way you act? Why do you do the things you do? Why do you go against the word of God? If it's true, why do you allow these people to say these things? Why? If it's true. Is it because we're afraid of them? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We need to stand up. It's not a time for compromise, ladies and gentlemen. It's not a, a time to call evil good and good evil. It's a time to stand for God. Notice verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found in him in peace without spot and blameless. Look at verse 17. You, therefore, beloved, seeing that you know these things beforehand, beware lest you being led away with the error of the wicked fall from their steadfastness, from your steadfastness. Don't let the wicked say these things to you. Don't allow it to permeate ears. Don't allow it to permeate your thinking. Why? Because we believe God, and everything they say is a heap of dung, according to the Apostle Paul. Everything they say. Recognize what God's word says. And notice in verse 18, and be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. Don't sit there vegetating. Do something to serve the living God, verse 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Forgive me for rushing through creation. There's so much more to be said about it that I can't say it. Thank you for your attendance. Thank you for this time together. Uh, Nancy and I have chosen, by our own free will, to retire at the end of April. So I will no longer be in a pulpit in this capacity any longer. And I'm thankful I'll be serving in the church in some capacity. Nancy also using our spiritual gifts. But I'll be retiring from the pastorate at the very last day of April. Let's pray together. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, help us not to be consumed with the things that men are saying. They are foolishness in the ears of the living God. Father, help us to recognize that they are scoffers. They're walking after their own lusts. They say that which does not pertain to your word. They speak evil of good and good of evil. And Father, we recognize that you have said uh, beforehand that all these things will come to pass, and so they have. So, Father, help us to live with all purity before you. Help us to be a good example. Help us, Father, not to become involved in arguments or, or foolish theology with men who just don't know the word of God. Help us only to give the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, there's some Christians who spend a great deal of time trying to defend you. You do not need defense. You have spoken, and it is so. So, Lord, just help us to tell them about the impending Doom coming to all who sin, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And help us to tell them about the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.